intelligent but we're gonna try to prove otherwise this is the clashing sabers podcast i am one of your hosts brandon boylan and i'm drew brett yes he is and we are excited this is this i feel like this is the first regular show that we've had in a while it's been a while it's it's our post solo uh experiences that's been fun yeah oh yeah and i've gotten really good feedback on having everybody on the show i'm so glad we finally got to do that we literally been talking for what Months? A year, yeah, almost yeah. a year. At least, since, yeah. since the start of the podcast, it's been crazy. So I was happy to finally get everybody on. That was that was a, that lot was a of blast. Fun. It was a lot of fun. Can't wait uh, to do it again. Sometime. Even with all the tech issues we have. <laughs> so, uh, Drew, what have you been uh, Star Warsing lately? Well, I think I've been kind of reconsidering my position on Solo just a little bit because from our show last time, um, we had. While all of us kind of landed on the less than positive side of things, um, I tried to go back and, and reconsider the criticisms that I had. So, like Mark had a good point about going back and listening to the soundtrack, and I did. Um, I listened to the soundtrack at least one time all the way through, and I really enjoyed it. I thought the music was great, but then I started thinking, why hadn't I heard this in, in the actual movie? Um, I started to really second guess like how much of the music I remembered, which bothered me because there were parts of the soundtrack that I really liked, but I couldn't place where it belonged in the film. So uh, now I'm concerned about like the editing and the mixing and and a lot more of the technical things that went into the to the film besides just the actual inclusion of music which kind of was weird. And then I don't know how much did this use might have seen but evidently m- one of my complaints was the cinematography it was very dark it was very muddy. Clearly I was not alone on that. Um there have been a lot of articles about really poor projection of this film. So I wanted to ask you, do you think you had a good projection, a good theater experience of this film? You know, I, I honestly don't know because the color scheme is so – everywhere they go, the color scheme's all a couple colors. It goes gray, and then it goes white and gray, and then it goes brown. And it isn't until yeah. you get to the beach scene that you really have any vibrance of color. And but even so, when you do that, it feels it felt pretty flat. It didn't feel it, like it felt as okay lively as it could, did it? It did. Okay. Now, when I went back, I think I we recorded on Saturday, and I went back on Sunday and saw it again, and accidentally ended up in a 3D showing because I didn't. Ooh, my movie no. pass thing did not show me that it was 3D. So I usually hate 3D. I still hate 3D, but I watched it anyways <laughs> because I can't replace that ticket. So I was like, well, I'm here. I'm. I'm watching it. You might and as well at that point. The backgrounds really all just faded away for me, and the characters really stood out. So I don't know if it was a projection thing or what, because I'm I'm not super enamored with the costumes in these. It's not like the prequels where you notice the costumes a lot. The right. costumes are a lot of the same colors as the background. So it, it's just I tried watching it through that lens. It was hard for me to tell in 3D and. I'm hoping to get back maybe one more time and then mm-hmm. keep an eye on that and see what what happens. But I'm with you on the the music. I love the soundtrack by itself. I think it's very Indiana Jones. But the yeah in in the film itself, the only things I ever noticed were the callbacks to 
things we've already had, you know, the rebel fanfare yeah. things. Yeah, they used like the, the the Escape from the Death Star music a couple times, and and a couple of those other like space flight adventure things, which are great pieces. And I really liked on the soundtrack how they added in like a, a real rhythm section and percussion, and kind of that driving undertones to it, which I, I thought was really good. And I, I kind of wish we heard more of that in the film. I suppose I'm really not going to have a, a good grasp on how it looks and sounds and feels until it comes out on home video, because that's where I'll really get to experience knowing I know what my TV looks like, I know what it sounds like and so when i compare that to what i can remember from the theater then i might get an honest to god judgment on how good this film actually is which is a little bit sad to me i don't know that i've had this kind of this problem with a a film about feeling like i'm not seeing what the film wants me to see before so this is a little bit interesting of a of a place to i find myself (laughs) yeah it is weird and it's especially weird because Disney has so many rules with theaters about about showing their movies. You yeah. would think they would have that. They would have you know somebody checking that or something. It's just oh. it, the whole situation is kind of weird. I, I think it played across like what four thousand screens on something that opening like that. weekend, something like that. And it's it's so many different things. Just the ability to check that is unwieldy, even for a company as massive as that. But I I, I tend to think that maybe this would be something that pushes theaters into that uh, that need to modernize to get their equipment up to snuff because this is really 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 bad and if everybody's initial opinions who had a bad experience were like mine i i have no interest in going to see it again unless that was a particular experience that i had was just the quality of projection and the theater itself but i don't know how to fix that i went to a pretty nice theater not like i guess maybe not the best one in town but i don't really know where else i would go to get a better experience than that it's kind of silly it is and i i would be interested in knowing like if any anything like this has happened with Infinity War or Deadpool or any other like major releases that have come out lately, that's a good question. Because I mean, yeah, I'm with you. They need to get their stuff up to date, and the theater system is struggling over. Well, I shouldn't say struggling overall. It's it's, it's having not, the best year it's ever had in human history this yeah, year. Yeah, but it is. The, it's changing. and it's June. <laughs> <laughs> it's changing though. Like it's undeniable. It's changing. Things are coming out on you know a digital release at the same time they're coming out in theaters for some smaller movies and things like that Mm -hmm. so the system is definitely changing and i mean hey star wars has always been uh, something that pushed technology forward and so maybe this is going to be what pushes it forward it'd be that's a good point maybe they'll do it again in a different way yeah absolutely a lot of it was behind the camera now maybe it'll be in front of the screen something like that i do want to jump back to uh real quick back to the soundtrack though okay the the one thing I do absolutely, I really like the soundtrack itself. Again, like I'm with you in the movie, it doesn't really stand out to me, but by itself, it's it's really good. The one thing that does uh, jump out to me for that is Emphis Nest's theme. Um, it's I think it's called the Marauders Appear or something, and it's got that children's choir. It's so oh, yeah. good. It, and I'd forgotten about that piece. And that's not bad. I I really like it because when you think choir in Star Wars, it's usually dark side stuff. It's usually Palpatine. And True. they were able to use this in a very different way. Uh, they use the choir. I, I'm not musically literate enough to explain how they used it in a different way. It just feels different. But I just like that it's a children's choir and that kind of foreshadows uh, what what's coming. It's it's very Star Wars because John Williams has did a lot of that in um, the the original trilogy, <laughs> but especially in the prequels. You know, 
uh, with Duel of the Fates and everything. And, and mm-hmm. so I really Anakin's theme, that. And, yeah, the motif in Anakin's theme yeah. ends on the Imperial March notes, which is really clever. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember that track. With, but that, that track brought something to mind because you're right that it does kind of clue you into the, the reality of who that of who Nest really is, I suppose, because the final reveal is kind of like she pulls her helmet off and it turns out she's like a 12-year-old girl or something like that. Really kind of like bothered me more because if she's kind of like this freedom fighter group, why is she why is her group referred to as the Marauders, which is not a freedom fighter type name? Like that's not even the name you'd use if you were opposing that particular group. Kind of like in a real-world situation, one person would consider a group freedom fighters. Another person might consider them a terrorist group. But Marauders is kind of a generally con- – I would presume it's a generally agreed upon term that is a-, a team of bandits and things. And I didn't really know how to reconcile the end of the film's portrayal of that group of characters with that particular understanding. Like – I Especially think, for Beckett, who's supposed to have such a history with those characters, and who's supposed to run into them, and the Crimson Dawn has run into them several times. It's like, don't we have a better understanding of who we're actually dealing with? But I'm not really sure. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, it makes sense, but I, I think the reason, one, the reason it's named that on the soundtrack is because of Qui-Gon's Noble End. I think they're a little more careful now about what they name the tracks, and they didn't want ah. to name it something that might hint i don't know why they didn't just call it emphasis nest theme that would have been you know serviceable but too easy. in the in the film itself i think the point is that they don't know who they are and so they consider them marauders I, it could be a situation where beckett is just believing the rhetoric that he's being told by crimson dawn because crimson dawn is paying him uh, no, some kind of thing maybe. or something like that you know it's 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 very much you know, the Empire called the Rebellion terrorists, and they obviously weren't. But, you know, if you're told that by somebody... Well, from from a certain point of view. Though. Yeah, exactly. And But so, Marauders doesn't really have, like, a flip side consideration that I can think of immediately. Like, what's the opposite of a Marauder besides... Uh, I mean, Robin Hood doesn't even really apply. Well, but if, I really Crimson, can't think Dawn, of if Crimson Dawn, you know, wants to paint them as something else... I mean, it's a possibility that they could paint them as that because they 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 just don't know, you know, really who they are. And the only thing that they have seen them do is come and steal, you know, uh, jobs right out from under them like we saw on the train high. So, I mean, do do we have any idea about a solo novelization anytime soon? uh, Anytime soon? No, (laughs) I think it comes out fall sometime. I guess falls oh, but closer than. Do you think we know that there's there is something coming? There is, there is definitely a novelization coming. Okay. Uh, I saw a tweet Could, from that. <laughs> one of the authors, and, and I'm I can't remember his name. I'll let you look that up because. Okay. Um, I'll I, find I don't it in remember. a second. I'm sure. But speaking look. of books, I have been reading. You're gonna hate me. Aftermath. I've been reading the Aftermath trilogy. Oh no! I'm and, so, so. Did you lose a bet or something? I'm reading it for for Don't Burn. We're we're gonna do the whole trilogy <laughs> together, and you're gonna hate me for this. Oh no! No, I, I don't like love it? them. I don't love them, but I do like them. Ugh. There are major problems with them, which I'll go into deeper detail on for Don't Burn the Sacred Text. But save it. <laughs> there. There are some things in there that I really like. Not so much Aftermath, the original one, but Life Dead and Empire's End. There's a lot of stuff in there I like. I 
I don't like that it was portrayed as a, you know, sequel to Return of the Jedi, basically, in the same way that, you know, Heir to the Empire was. Uh, But if you take it just for what it is, I think there's some pretty cool things in there. Except one thing, and I just got to get this off my chest because nobody else will listen to me talk about it. (laughs) I like uh, Chuck Wendig has recently gone on Twitter and said some things that are, I guess, controversial. And so I'm not talking about him as a person, but talking about him as an author, I don't think he fits into the Star Wars author pantheon very well because Mm -hmm. I feel like he is someone, you know, Star Wars has that, we always say it has that uh, familiar feeling, but it's also far away. And, you know, it's something different, but familiar. And I don't think that Wendig is able to capture that. There's just the way that he... The way that he writes, he tries to stick in things like different species, um, like just random bugs and things like that, and give them names, but he calls them like Yaya flies. And it's like, Ugh. you just put Yaya in front of flies to Ugh. make it. You know? Yeah, it's exactly. It's very eye roll. And Yeah, I, I, he, I'm not a strong proponent of those books if you guys couldn't tell um, um and i feel like a lot of it hinges on that very issue is that his language is used so differently and even like what you said like when he's speaking for himself not when he's got writing as an author when he's just publishing on twitter his own personal thoughts it doesn't even sound like the way the rest of the star wars authors communicate like he's very crass he's very rough he's very um i, I, don't, I don't know what the singular word is but everything he says if you agree with him you're phenomenal but if he if you disagree with him or if you are not necessarily in conflict but in opposition then you are the lowest of the low and the scummiest of the scummiest and it's not constructive for the community yeah. um, at all like I, I think i know what you're talking about roughly like I saw earlier in today where he went on on a tirade about some other toxic fans in or people who were complaining about the new canon and new entries in it, and then he's just like totally tearing these people apart. And I'm like, dude, you're you're actually doing the thing you're complaining about just to a different group of people, so you don't get to complain about their particular tactics. It's really not fair when you do that, and it's not helpful for a conversation at all. And I think his novels go along the same way. It just he goes barrels down his own path in his novels and it has no consideration for anything else that's really going on in the rest of the universe around it. And I think there's a lot of stuff in his books that do that. The thing that bothered me the most, and feel free to clip that clip this and put it into your the Don't Burn the Sacred Text, is that when he canonized um, the idea of a certain point of view as not just something Obi-Wan said in the moment in Return of the Jedi, but rather a tenant of the Jedi Order, really, really bothers me. Um, that doesn't fit with anything else we know about the Jedi Order. They've never been that kind of wishy-washy, you know, for thousands of years, it's been this is what we're doing, and we're going to do exactly this, and we're going to create rules and structures around it. That's one of the reasons they got into the problems they had. And to say that, well, from a certain point of view, is really how they live their life, no, 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 no. Stop. I think... When he, I, I have a feeling when he was writing this, he's like, this might be the only chance I ever get to write Star Wars, so I've got to do every Star Wars thing I could <laughs> ever want to do. And yeah, I, I'm with you. He he has a certain edge to him that I just don't feel like fits in to the Star Wars galaxy. 
Um, but I do have to say, I've been kind of half and half uh, reading it and doing the audiobook, and I've never listened to the audiobook before. And the audiobook makes a huge difference. I think that's part of the reason I'm enjoying it a little bit more is okay. Mark Thompson does such a good job. I, I remember mean, he, doing the audiobook for one of the entries, and I can't remember which. I think it was the second one because whoever they got to play or however they did, the Han Solo's voice was like, no, stop trying to be Harrison Ford. That's, yeah, that's the Just only don't one. don't do it. That's the only one that doesn't work for me. But the voices he gives to characters is really I, I have a problem when I'm reading that like once I get this idea in my head about what somebody looks like or what somebody sounds like it's yeah. stuck there even if I reread it and it tells me differently that happened with Lost Stars have you read Lost Stars I have not okay well Lost Stars the the lead female is uh African-American I guess you call her African-American not in Star Wars she's yeah <laughs> she's, she's black whatever you know and I don't know why but I missed that the first time that I read it and so in my head, she was just like some plain white girl. And when I went back and like I saw fan art, I was like, wait a minute, that doesn't look like Sienna. And then I went back and read it again. I was like, oh, my image was completely wrong. I totally missed that somehow. And I had the exact same experience with Ray Sloan. Exact same. Really? That's crazy. Totally missed the physical description. So all I did was substitute um, Natasi Dayala from the the Legends canon for this new character. It's like, that's oh, probably the same person. And then when I saw like the comic book issues, I was like, who is this person? Oh. oh, okay. Oops, my bad. My bad. I, I made a, a mistake. Major, I a major wrong. part of it for me is unless it's like a def- their, their characteristics kind of define part of their journey, kind of like Thrawn does. Uh, him being an alien defines like part of his experience in the empire. I True. couldn't care less what they look like, you know? And it's so it just like, I blow past it and I'm like, get yep. to the, the actions, not the action stuff, but like the character <laughs> development stuff. I'm like, I want to know about this person, not about what they look like. Yeah. And so well, no, it, it, it kind of reveals a little bit about you and I at the same time. It's kind of like, well, we have a preconceived notion when we go into these things already. And maybe that's not necessarily fair. And we need to do a better job of paying closer attention to those things. You know, just kind of what I've been trying to like get out of that. It's like, all right, maybe that's not all on the authorship. Maybe that's on the readership, too. We got to work oh, a little no. bit be better. Absolutely. No, I don't think it's on the author at all. I think it's totally on me as the reader trying to get to certain things and thereby missing certain things. And I think yeah. we all can try to be a little bit better by, you know, yeah. trying to and be a Brand- little bit better. And Brandon is a terrible person. So well, I we kind do of- that already. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I do like the the diversity that they're bringing in the books. And I, I actually like, I kind of feel, not kind of, I really do feel bad sometimes when I miss that and then like just go to the static white person in my head. And yeah. so I appreciate when I'm kind of shaken out of that. It happened with, uh, with Sinjir also. <sighs> I don't remember who the the actor is, but somebody posted a, a meme of um, a Middle East Middle Eastern actor who's been on. He was the guy in uh, Lion. Did you see that movie Lion? I know of it. I haven't watched okay. it yet. It's on my Netflix. I haven't watched queue. it either. But he's it, that actor, and they proposed him as as Sinjir, and oh. I was like, okay. And so now, like, I see him when I see Sinjir, and it's, I mean shocker diversity is a good thing but it's it's actually been a lot more fun like having a more clear image in my head about that maybe that's part of what's helping me enjoy this book more this time too nice well done sir 
Good I do you. what I can. I do what I can. Uh, so, <laughs> and then I, uh, I've also been working on my uh, presentation for uh, when I go to Intergalacticon in two weeks, which is insane. Oh my two. gosh, is it that close already? It's that close. I don't and think I realized that. <laughs> I don't think I realized that either until I got to the end of school and was like, oh, I have like 12 days and I need to have a presentation ready to go. And so I was scrambling. Luckily, I think it came together pretty well. What, it, and what, what are you? Uh, what it, are you allowed to say what you're speaking on? Or are you yeah, yeah, I'm apps? talking about uh, teaching using Star Wars. Oh, and cool. So, yeah, so I'll be talking about that, and I'm going to kind of show ways that I use it in the classroom and and why I think it's helped and stuff. And it's actually it's been really uh, a lot of fun to go back and look at everything that has that I've done this year with my students and kind of how far they've come. We did graduation uh, on this past Thursday oh, and wow. it was all very emotional and you know, all that good stuff, but it was fun <laughs> to kind of go back and see everything that I've done with them and, and kind of how they challenged me to look at star Wars in a new way. That's one of the reasons I love teaching star Wars is I always get somehow get challenged in a new and different way from the way that the kids see the story. And it's, I find that a lot of fun. Well, that's so, fantastic. Good on you. Yeah. So anyway, we're going to be digging into our duos, our, our least favorite and most favorite duos uh, of the Star Wars galaxy. I think I think we've talked about this before. We're going to try to start doing this top three, bottom three kind of situation. So we are going to take a quick break and then we're going to jump right back into that. we are going to start our first ever top three, bottom three. And the way that we are doing this particular one, we're going to look at the duos in Star Wars. And it'll be kind of different each time how we define top three, bottom three, just kind of depending on what we're talking about. So I wanted to jump into how we're defining it this time before we go into uh, our pairs. So sweet. What are your rules? What did you come up with? First of all, well, I think, I kind of went with what we talked about when we were texting films, shows, current canon, books and comics only. So the only only the current canon, no uh, legend stuff. No Dash Rendar. Got it. OK, I know he was. He do was, you even know who that is? I do know who Dash Rendar okay, is. Good. I have Shoo. read Shadows of the Empire more times than I would like to admit. Attaboy. Um, I was really into it when I was a kid and it's just really fun. It's a lot of fun. It. Yeah, but there's some major problems with it. Oh, yeah. Um. Okay, so moving on before we go down that rabbit hole, romantic pairings are out because, you know, starships. If you haven't already listened to starships, what are you doing? Just yeah, subscribe to the really, network. Didn't want to step on anybody's toes on that one. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, Ash does, Ash does a better job at, us than, <laughs> yeah. at that than we do. That's, let's yeah. be honest. 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. We absolutely. still think girls are icky, so whatever. They have cooties. Um, and we're going to, when we're looking at our worst three, our bottom three, uh, we're looking at who is the most evil. And when we're looking at our best three, we're looking at who is the most heroic. And of course, our favorites, least favorites will kind of tint that a little bit. Drew, did you have any uh, extra rules that you added to your list? The only other thing I, the only other two rules that I, I try to use is I didn't want to use any characters more than once in a list. Like, so I didn't want them to be paired up with somebody for one one entry and then another person for a second entry. So I tried to limit myself to singular appearances on the list. I also tried to vary the the sources. Um, mine all come from movies just because they're a lot better than anything else. And I try to do a variety of the films and, and, and stay to, I try to stay away from the obvious things because, a, you know, Luke Leigh and Han are going to, trade back and forth although i'm going to cheat this rule a little bit in a few minutes anyway but i try to stay away from like the top most obvious things and, and dig down and see what other examples there might be of pairs of people who serve in these particular functions either top heroics or most evil i definitely That's about did it. not follow the uh only one time on the list rule yeah I'm gonna tell you that right i didn't now. think you would <laughs> yeah no it just I, the way I, I, I did it is i just wrote one, two, three, and then I wrote down the first pairs that came to mind. And I switched a couple of them later on, but I would kind of just trusted my gut with uh, with who I went with. So, And I, I think, think I, I predict I, some like two of the people who are going to show up on yours at least two times. So that's okay. You, you might be wrong. You never know. Um, okay, so you want to start with bottom three so we can end on a positive note? Sure, why not? All right. You want to start or you want me to? Uh, why don't you give us your bottom number? Number All three. Right. My number three is Sidious and Dooku. Ooh. Yeah. So we don't see them on screen together a lot, but the result of their working together is very pleasant or present, <laughs> not very pleasant. And <laughs> these are the, like these are the two guys who really take over the galaxy. I mean, I know Dooku is not alive when Palpatine takes over the galaxy, but without True. Dooku, he doesn't do it. Like the plummets an entire galaxy into war and if it honestly if it hadn't been for palpatine basically setting up everything to get dooku killed dooku would have been at his side when he came to power so i also think they have a very dynamic mix because you've got palpatine's knowledge of the dark side and then you have dooku's knowledge of the jedi and i think it sets up a a very difficult duo to to beat and they definitely do some heinous things Dang, that's a good pick. I didn't even think of that just because of they have such little screen time together. But that's a really good one. Yeah, and I think being the animation fan that I am, Clone Wars has a major impact on that because you see a lot more of what Dooku does and what the Separatists do uh, throughout the Clone Wars that you don't really get in the movies as much. Nice, good job. All right, I'm going to go number three. Um, we can go back and forth if that's cool. Yeah, yeah. All right, now don't laugh, but my first entry here is going to be from the Phantom Menace, and it's Rune Hako and Newt Gunray. Because okay, I you're talking about Phantom Menace, so I'm gonna I'm gonna allow it. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I won't talk it for very long, I promise. But nothing spells evil like these guys who are just basically tax policy with blaster rifles attached to it. And I thought they were kind of very comedic in how bad they were at what they're doing. They're like astonishingly bad at their jobs of running the Trade Federation, and they entrust the entirety of their organization, which has a seat in the Senate, to someone they've never met, a dude who like basically only communicates in a bathrobe. And they, they, we have no idea where this alliance comes from and these guys are hopelessly hopelessly outclassed and they have no idea they think that they are players in the same game as palpatine and they don't even see it when vader shows up on mustafar at the end to strike them all down but i like these characters they're goofy they're ridiculous they're just this side of offensive but they kind of like they're the baseline evil. You know that they're evil from the moment you meet them, and they're not even all that bad people. They're just so strung along and used for their uh, for their money and for the, the the real pawns in the chess game that Sidious is putting together. I'm going with the Nemodians. I I love that. I love it, <laughs> and I, I think they. And I had to leave out Dolte Dauphine, and his name is phenomenal. They're so good. All of the they're so bad, are it's so good. Great. Yeah. Well, they're, they're not all great. I mean, Newt Gunray is basically George Lucas taking Newt Gingrich and Ronald Reagan and mixing them together to make their most his most ultimate evil of evil Republicans. So it's not that clever. Newt Gunray is fun to say. So it is fun to say because it's one of those comically bad names to me. His name and is Newt. They. So when I when I read the books to the kids, I, I do the voices, and I've got to say, doing Nemoidian voices is my favorite. Mm. It's so good. <laughs> I object. Yeah. Uh, ridiculous. It's, it's the best. I object and descend it. Come on, guys. These are bad. All right. What's your number two? My number two of my most evil of evil is they're technically not a duo in the not in the sense of like they're not a team, but they are forever intertwined and influence each other's paths. And it is director Orson Krennic and Grand Moff Tarkin. Oh no! What? Nothing. Go ahead. You can't. N- I, I'm I'm very confused about how you could not agree with this. They. They bring out the best in each other by bringing out the worst in each other. And Catalyst, you probably haven't read it because you're lame. And it, it, Catalyst was the prequel to Rogue One, the little prequel novel. No, I think I started it at the audiobook and he went, Star Wars, Rogue One, Catalyst. I was like, nope, off, done. Can't do this. I have to read a book. I couldn't do it. Um, Couldn't do it. I read it twice. It's really good. I'd like to. All right, continue. It is a really good book. Anyways. The they hate each other so much that they just keep trying to outdo each other and outdo each other in like the pettiest of petty ways. But the end result is the Death Star. Mm. So, I mean, it kind of blows up, you know, two portions of two worlds and, you know, all of Alderaan. And it (laughs) basically was like the result of a really bad divorce between these two people. Oh, man. No, what, I, I, I totally agree. Like well, no, it's not that I don't like it. Um, my number two is director Orson Krennic and Grand Moff Tarkin. The exact <laughs> same thing. <laughs> it is the exact it. same thing for, for almost so the exact good. same reason. They both have the exact same goal. 
control and application of the Death Star, but they both want it for themselves. So they have these absolutely conflicting yet completely uniform goals. I absolutely love these guys and the way that they deal with each other and the way they have to deal around each other. You know, Krennic has to go to Vader and say, well, I'm still in charge then. I mean, that kind of stuff is phenomenal. It gives us so much character and it gives so much insight into what these people are really like. And then when Tarkin just so smoothly after the test fire at Jeddah says, like he transfers control and you know he'll be assuming um full directorship of the of the death star but he does it in such a way he's complimenting Krennic. he said this is amazing you've done a wonderful job thank you for letting me drive the boat now i mean it's so brilliant i love these guys i think they're amazing they rogue one is a masterpiece but they are one of the best parts of it they're they're certainly part the probably part of the top five things that make that movie so much fun to watch I think the the saddest part about Rogue One is the fact that like there's not a lot of stories left to tell with Krennic. I <laughs> He's think such a good what, bad guy. That's the beauty of that film is it's so self-contained. It's exactly yeah, what true. it is from the opening to the closing. It is one complete story of here are the people, here's the mission, done. And that is it. And there's something clean about that. Now, again, we've talked about Rogue One to death, but I really feel like this is – gotta be the way we go forward is this kind of storytelling that says here's exactly what you need to know here's every piece of the puzzle you know what's going to happen at the end of the film but we're going to do this in such a way that you've never seen anything like it before and you're going to want to keep coming back to this particular entry that's what these anthology films to me really really need to to lay into and lay ownership on the saga films should be about world building and telling this long continuing story leave you wanting more the anthologies need to be these well curated expertly crafted kind of singular entries i don't need a prequel book i don't need a follow-up book i know exactly what happens next you know tanta four pops out of light speed and the devastator is tailing it across tatooine it's amazing and krennic and tarkin are are the probably one of the best reasons why i like that movie so much you know i thought about putting kylo and uh, general hux on this list and then i i knew krennic and tarkin were going to be on my list and i was for the first very similar reasons i thought about putting hux and kylo ren and then i was like that's just not even close they're not even in the same ballpark like, they re- it's really not krennic it's and tarkin not. are fighting for daddy palpatine's attention with the death star in the same way that Kylo and Hux are fighting for Snoke's attention, but it's like two grown men. But like Krennic and Tarkin are like two grown men battling it out for like a job position. Whereas Kylo and Hux are like basically children whining because they don't get enough attention. Well, I feel, yeah, I I think that's a pretty fair assessment. I think Krennic and Tarkin both have these goals that they have in mind is like control power and and the ability to exert that whenever they want. I don't really know that we understand Hux very well, other than he's the son of the guy who brought the First Order to prominence. So I don't feel like we know enough, or maybe it's just me. I'm willing to lay that out there and say, I don't really know what drives him to serve so much, he, other than he just wants that kind of validation. Yeah, it's it's mostly that. he's His character... Has not been developed a lot in the books, but he's been explored a little bit more in the books. And basically, he's a bastard child of his father. And so he kind of, you know, gets looked down on by his dad and never gets enough, 
you know, love or whatever. And so he takes that out on everybody else. He's the bully in the, the first order and, and all that stuff. So mm. his character gets a little bit more depth. If you look at like the books and where he came from and, and him being the little child vying for daddy's attention makes perfect sense in the same way. It makes perfect sense for Kylo Ren, but it just doesn't, it doesn't put them on the same level of, of a Krennic and Tarkin. Do it's you think that's more, do you think that's more um, from the Force Awakens novelization, or because I don't remember that from the Last Jedi it's, book? Are you, are you referring to Hux? Yes, it's more the ancillary stuff. There was some of it in Phasma, like he had his a uh, spoiler alert for Phasma, but he had his father killed, um, and by like a poisonous beetle that he found on the planet that Phasma comes from, and it it it's, it makes it's it's a lot better. It's a lot better in the book. Trust me, it uh, sounds okay. stupid at first, but it actually works really, really well in the book because of how they, they, they developed the whole story. But um, and then there's some examples of it. I think I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. I don't have everything in there. I think there's a mention of him in w- w- Aftermath Empires. And I think there's yeah. a couple mentions of him um, yeah. in other places. I know his his father's in Life Dead and Empires End, but I don't remember if. Uh, okay. We'll yeah. see. Episode we'll nine. See. We're look. We're you know waiting with bated breath, guys. Yeah, that's. <laughs> we not have a lot happen. of work to do on this one. Come on, guys, get with it. Hux is a throwaway character. I hate to say it, but oh, you don't think he's gonna do much in episode nine? I really don't. I really, mm-hmm. really don't. I think JJ put him in there to do that one Nazi speech before. I love that speech. Republic. It's so good, but not that Nazi. The loathsome <laughs> Republic. It's, it's so good. I, I, I mean, I. <laughs> I don't really want them to do much with him. I like that he's just like this mustache twirling, like loathsome rebellion kind of person. You know, he's very clearly defined. And with a character like Kylo Ren, who is very undefined in a weird way, it's nice having Hux. And we just like, okay, he's evil. I understand that. That's easy. He's the bad guy. Got it. All right. Moving on. Evil. I think. Okay. So we had the same number two. So I guess that is my number one. Hopefully we don't have the same number one. I kind of feel like my number one's a cop out and I tried to really change it to anybody else. And I couldn't think of anybody who was in the same pantheon as these two. Okay. Darth Vader and Emperor Palpatine. Oh, phew. We're so close. Good. All right. We're good. We have different numbers. (laughs) Well, first of all, like, like I said, I have Sidious, Palpatine, number three and number two on my list. But I mean, you've got genocide, destroying the Jedi, subjugating a galaxy, like, Palpatine is a sociopath. Vader's so manipulated he doesn't even have any sense of humanity until Luke shows up. And honestly, like a lot of this goes to Palpatine because of how he hmm. manipulates Vader um, and just how much control he has over him to wield him in such a heinous, vicious way. I mean, because there's like moments where we see Anakin coming through like the moment with Ahsoka at the end of rebel season two. Um, he thinks about her in Lords of the Sith, but for the most part, there's 10 to 20 years where Vader is nothing but pure evil. And that's because of the manipulation of Palpatine. Hmm. And it's just, he's a bad dude. Like I was talking about Hux, like being (laughs) able to define Hux. There's nothing redeemable about Palpatine. He's an egocentric sociopath, and that makes him the worst of the worst, in my opinion. 
Hmm. Well done. I, I, I can't argue with you. That's it's a pretty fair assessment of uh, both of those guys. Uh, my top here, just to round this conversation out, is is Vader and Admiral Nida. Um, so I'm going to go a okay. little bit more okay. mundane, and, and here's why. Palpatine, I thought about Vader and Palpatine, and I was like, that's pretty, uh, it's it's kind of pretty obvious. It's glaring. He, you know, they're on the covers of the boxes and whatnot. So you, you know Sidious is the big bad of the whole series and the whole saga, basically. I was like, all right, what else do we got? Because he's kind of clownishly evil. Like, he's a space wizard from Satan kind of thing. And when you look at him, you know he's evil, kind of like the Nemoidians. You just know that they're the bad guys in the film. And I thought, what's a little bit more subversive than that is kind of the mundane guys who make the trains run on time. Or, if you will, the guys who pilot the Star Destroyers from from, uh, station to station. So I think Vader and Nita really demonstrate what it looks like when evil is applied across the board. Because Palpatine has his schemes. Palpatine has his dark side plans and privileges and powers and whatnot. But Nita is the guy who makes the thing happen. He's kind of the one who is able to say, hey, look, if this is our goal – what you want the way you want to do this right now isn't going to work we should do it this way he's kind of making the evil effective and is kind of making it realistic and in its application and execution and i think the difference between vader and nita in empire and in return of the jedi is demonstrative of that because nita stands up to vader and gives him the straight up truth and is able to move up because of that and if there's anything that I've learned in life is that middle management controls a lot of evil things and can do a lot of evil things. And I think that's what these guys really represent. Vader is kind of the muscle. He's the guy who says, here's what the emperor wants and we're going to go do it. But Nita's still the one who has to pull the trigger. And I think that's really the dangerous thing, especially in like a regime or in a government is if you have a crazy guy at the top, that's one thing. But if you have a crazy guy at the top and a fleet of underlings who are willing to execute on crazy guys directives, that's serious trouble because now you don't have the opportunity and the ability to put checks and and restrictions on the craziness of the one at top. And if I'm not, going to say we're talking about current political systems, but extrapolate that as far as you want. That's really where evil gets his, gets the gas in the engine, is when there's support staff that can actually execute on it. So I think that is what I wanted to call out with that one. No, I think that's a really good point. Like, Nita is what happens when evil gets normalized. Exactly. And, God, you said it so much better than I did. No, no, no. I think you, I think you said it very, very well. And I like that they are kind of exploring that a little bit more. Again, I'm going to go back to Lost Stars, but there's a lot in Lost Stars about people after Alderaan questioning or digging their heels in and either going full bore empire or like saying, I don't know if this is really what was supposed to happen. And that level of humanity for the empire is something that I think we think we were missing, but maybe we weren't as much as we thought we were because of like people like Nita and stuff. Uh, yeah, There's- I think it's there on the screen because I think yeah. you've got like all those characters like Ozzel and Nita and Piet. Oh, you know what? Piet. Am I thinking of Piet? Holy cow. Guys, back everything up. Let's. Did I get that wrong? No, you Piet. Know what? It is Piet. Wow. Reverse all of that. Go all the way back. And we're <laughs> talking about Piet. Nita is the guy who gets choked on it. Nita in, is the one. Yeah. I am very, very sorry. Don't ever let this happen again. 
they were we're talking about Piet because he's the one he's the one who survives and and eventually goes to pilot the executor okay my bad i i've seen these movies before i swear well in that moment at the beginning of return of the jedi when is it that's right captain nita i should have got that right i'm so embarrassed that's what got me i was like Okay, yeah, I just couldn't place it. Anyways, but the the moment at the beginning of Return of the Jedi where Vader arrives on the second Death Star, uh, just you see the fear in in Piet's eyes, and it's just it's so good. Oh, you're talking about uh, Jerjerod, the guy who who's in charge of the. De- we shall double yeah. our efforts. Yeah, yeah Moff yeah. Jerjerod. Yeah, Moff it's Gergerod. been a while since I've looked at my Star Wars CCG cards, and so <laughs> all of these guys' names and stats have, have are failing me. <laughs> I'm not good at. Uh, imperial names i'm really bad at that they all just are the same to me which i think is kind of but i like yeah it really is but i like the imperial officers i like how they gave them life especially i I think it really started in in empire strikes back and and the things that they wanted to do there but yeah piet my bad guys that's the one i liked because he's the one who stands up he's the one who gets promoted um after vader chokes ozzel now well, I've said that, and I'm probably wrong about that. Let's get the <laughs> nozzle, and yes, um, But I Shoo! think Solo, one thing it does really well is that scene um, where Han's trying to escape Corellia, and they bribe the Imperial officer. Okay. It just shows how deep that corruption goes, and then you have the recruiting guy, and Han like says he doesn't have any people, so he's like, whatever, I'm just going to make up a Ugh. name. I'll be somewhere. It's a terrible moment for Han. <laughs> but it's a great moment for that Imperial officer because it's like it's just a dude that is just trying to make his pay and he's just going to let whatever yeah. happens. Happen. He's got a quota. He's got a hit. And he's like, I'm not going to let this stand in my way. You're getting a last name, sucker. Yeah, exactly. So I think I think it could really do Vader and all the Imperial officers mix and repeat. All right. So you ready to jump into uh <laughs> You ready to jump into our best three? This is the part I'm excited about talking about. I have the names correct for this one. I Googled them all well ahead of time, I promise you. Okay. Before we jump into this one, I have to give an honorable mention. Okay. So so I'm I'm cheating a little bit because we said no romantic pairings, so that's why these are an honorable mention and not on my list. But Kanan and Hera, even Mm. outside of their romantic connection, are such a good duo. And I just had to say that. Like, yep. Hera also, understands Kanan on a level he doesn't even understand himself. Kanan trusts Hera on a level he doesn't even trust himself. They just, they're the epitome of a healthy relationship. They bring out the best in each other, and I i just wanted to say that. So, um, I started last <laughs> time. You want to start this list? Uh, sure. Um, Go for it. You're number um, three. Number three, uh, Red and Gold Leaders, Gavin Drees and John Dutch Vander. Now, these wow, two guys. did go out there. Okay. Okay, I, I did, and I really like these guys. First and foremost, because I really like Y wings. I was big into Y wings when I was a kid, and that was my uh, my light side deck in the Star Wars CCG was Y wing Hoth Echo Base Control. Anyway, so I really like Dutch. Dutch is kind of my guy. He's the gold leader. He's you know, in charge of the Y wing squadron, both at Scarif and on the Death Star assault. And I really liked his character, and I have no earthly idea why. So I wanted to try and like really represent. Kind of the same thing with Vader and Piet on the side of the Alliance. Like, what demonstrates um, working together? What demonstrates their commitment to the plan and the belief that they're fighting for something better than themselves? And it's these two guys. Because the way that Red Leader kind of grills Luke a little bit in A New Hope in the special edition, where he says, are you sure you can really handle this thing? 
and Biggs steps up to defend him and 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 Luke says I'm going to do everything I can. He's real happy. He's real proud of himself. And you can see the look in the, in in Red Leader's eyes where he's like this kid doesn't know anything and he's going to get himself killed. And I really like his character because he's kind of like the grizzled old man veteran who's like tired of training new kids just to watch him die, but he's still willing to get in the in the in the cockpit of the X-Wing, get the job done himself. I like the way that his squadron clears the way for the Y-Wings to come in. Originally, it's their job to go and blow up the Death Star, and he has to watch as they're all wiped out one by one. It's so rough, but and, and, and Dutch, the way he leads his team is, is really a lot of fun to watch on screen because he's doing what he can, but he's also watching things fall apart. You know, Tyree gets blown out of the sky so darn fast, and then Pops is, just won't listen to what he's telling them to do. He's trying to say we got to split up and take another run at this but pops is saying no you gotta you're, you're in here you gotta do it now and, and it costs them both their lives and i the reason i like these two guys is because they're both emblematic of that idea of you've got to get the job done no matter what it takes and the value that you bring to the job is completely measured on its level of success or failure and, and maybe those aren't the most admirable qualities because it got both of them killed but at the same time, that's kind of what the rebellion needed. It needed the sacrifice there to get the job done. I mean, if you think about it, what, 30 rebel ships flew out at Yavin 4, and three of them flew back, plus the Falcon. That's a pretty high rate of attrition. And I like that these two guys were the leaders of the squadrons who were tasked with the the unachievable kind of thing. Do we ever get, like, a backstory on those two? I mean, I know we don't have one in current canon, but did you um, ever because I like, I wonder if they are former Imperials or fought in the most, Clone War or anything. Most of your Rebellion pilots are former former Imperial pilots. Um, Big Starkwriter is that he kind of he jumped ship with a bunch of guys from the Rand Ecliptic. Um, was one of the the I don't think it was a Star Destroyer, but it was like a Imperial transport, and they jumped with like fifteen to twenty guys or something like that, and they just they they mutinied and took over the ship and, and turned it to the rebellion. I don't know about these two guys in particular. Um, when a lot of these guys' information came out it was in the mid '90s, and I don't know that there was a lot of writing, either book or comic book wise, done for that particular era of pre uh, a New Hope. Most people were focused on what came after Return of the Jedi, so that these guys, I don't know that they had the largest backstories ever filled out. Um, is there some? Sure. I mean, that's th- there is an issue um, in the meta that basically said in in the card game, uh, Gold Leader was named Dutch. That's his name, Dutch. But then there's a secondary source that came out that said his name was John Vander, and I can't remember what the credits of the movie say, but there's an issue between those two sources. So they had to retcon it so that the name Dutch is his nickname and that John Vander is his actual given name. So that's probably the extent of the type of back. That's that's all I can recall immediately. Um, I don't know if the characters show up in any of the other shows... I wonder if they show up in Rebels at all. You would know that better than I would. I'm trying to think. There's a couple pilots that show up. I know Hobby shows up. He oh, com- that. Oh, really? Oh, Hobby's the man. Hobby, Hobby shows- also, his nickname. Do you know his real name? No. Oh, listeners, write in. I'm a, I'm a bad person. What is it? It's Derek Clivian. Derek Hobby Clivian. I'll stick with Hobby. 
he like survives survives the Battle of Hoth and continues um, a glorious career in uh, Rogue Squadron and then Wraith Squadron. Or does he? No, he does. <laughs> does he though? I honestly can't believe uh, what happens to him in Rebels, so I'm not spoiling anything there. <laughs> I know seeing he as how up, he was in Empire Strikes Back, I'm sure he makes it out of Rebels alive. Well, he makes it out of Rebels alive, but I don't, I don't remember what say what <laughs> Anyways, anyways, move, move along, move along. Um, I don't. You know what's funny is I had this Y-wing toy when I was a kid growing up, and the little, the back clear parts popped off, and so you ended up with a smaller ship. Did you ever have anything like that? They, like, ejected from the main thing? Yeah. So I always thought that was, like, how they went to hyperspace. So I always would pop Gosh. those off before my Y-Wings went to hyperspace. It was weird. Uh, my mind got blown a little bit when I learned that Y-Wings have two seats. Wait, what? You have a pilot and you have a co-pilot. He sits directly behind the main pilot and is usually responsible for the guns. The Also, the laser cannon on the top of the Y-Wing, above the cockpit rotates in 180 degrees or 360 degrees that's cool all right so my <laughs> y wings three, are the best y wings are pretty cool i think they get shadowed by the x wings and don't get enough respect well it's because they're about half as fast and terribly unmaneuverable and they're basically tanks that fly in space and they're kind of fun yeah they are uh so my number three i, I Go for feel it. bad i didn't get as creative as as you did on my list let the record show. Brandon, not as creative as you. <laughs> I, I went with Anakin and Obi-Wan. I just, yeah, I thought about this kind of stuff. Go ahead and give me yours. So, okay. So the beginning of the Re- Revenge of the Sith shows them just like working together seamlessly. Even though they fall down, they, they get each other back up. We're smarter so, than this. Apparently yeah. not. And they just understand each other on such an amazing level. And in the beginning of the Revenge of the Sith novelization, they basically talk about, Matthew Stover talks about how the entire galaxy basically looks up to these two as mythic heroes. Almost, when I was thinking about it, it was almost like how Americans look at the Founding Fathers. We don't look at the flaws that they had, just all the great things that they did. And, and See, this is why you need to listen to Hamilton, because that I statement listen- would be different. I did listen Boy, to Hamilton. You did? I texted you that I listened to Hamilton, and you never texted me back. You liar. Do not tell lies when we were recording things, and I can look them up. Uh, it's in our group me conversation somewhere. I made a Hamilton oh, quote, now and neither okay. you or Lindsay. Uh, it was months ago, so I can't remember there anything is about it. But. no way that critical piece of information came by, and neither Lindsay nor I responded to you and it, gave you significant grief. It is, it is accurate. I, I, I will promise. find it later. I, All I right. promise. Anyway. Continue. Hamilton does do a good job of that. But until <sighs> that point in history, we tended to have rose-colored glasses when it came to the Founding Fathers. And it's, it's very similar with Anakin and Obi-Wan. They are just like superstars. And forget the fact that they're you know Jedi generals fighting in a war when Jedi aren't supposed to do that. But... Even more so, the an- my, my love for animation comes through with these two because the Clone Wars series is just such a great example of why they are a great duo. Every mm, single time yeah. Anakin goes off and does something reckless, Obi-Wan's like, that sounds like Anakin. And Anakin's <laughs> Oh, just you like, guys. And Anakin's just like, Obi-Wan will expect this, don't worry. And <laughs> it's like they see each other's flaws and they just accept them and work within those parameters and 
I just I, I love it. I love it. I do like the way that the Clone Wars TV show really actually showed the two of them having an, a, an actual relationship and adventures together. I, I'm really glad that they took the time to flesh that out because when they were just supposed to buy that they had them in Revenge of the Sith and it, it didn't, never really felt strongly enough uh, constructed to be believable. And especially when you have Obi-Wan and A New Hope saying he was you know, uh, the best star pilot in the galaxy and he was a good friend. It's like, well, that's not exactly how you left him burning in Mustafar, but okay. Yeah, so Clone Wars I, really did the heavy lifting on that one, and I'm yeah, very thankful for that. It absolutely did, yeah. I mean, the beginning of Revenge of the Sith is like the epitome or, or, or the climax of what builds during Clone Wars. It's like the ultimate example of the two of them just yeah. being awesome. And honestly, like, if it weren't for, you know, the whole chopping him in half and leaving him burning on Mustafar thing, they'd probably be number one. Yeah, so that yeah, it, it immolation kind of scene things. has a tinges things a bit. It, it it does. All right, so uh, who is your number two? Who okay. are your number two? This is the one I kind of went back and forth on, and I I really had to like I was changing things up until like the minute we hit the record button tonight, um, because I really we've talked so much about Rogue One, but I can't get over Cassian and Jin Erso. They're just so much fun to watch the two of those together. I thought about Cassian and K2SO, but K2 doesn't really demonstrate heroism all that much. <laughs> he's very entertaining, but I he's, love K2. <laughs> he's great. See, that's kind of the struggle I have with this is that if, if we were doing, um, duos who were your favorite to watch on screen or who had the most interesting relationship these guys it would have been cassian and k2 but we're not talking about that we're talking about heroism here specifically and that's why i swapped out k2 for Jin, because these two come from as far apart as you can get in motivations in goals in backstories they're two wildly different people and yet they have so much of these things that are similar and in line with each other. Um, they both want what they want, and they're going to do whatever they can to get it done. And it takes the entire movie for those two things to line up with the other characteristics that are disparate from each other. So it, it really t hinges on that that confrontation on Edu, where Cassian is looking to kill Galen Urso and he backs off. He knows it's the wrong thing. He says, "This I just can't do it for whatever reasons. And then he's confronted about that. This was your mission. You know, Jin accuses him. You were, you were out there to kill him. And he was like, well, yeah, but I didn't kill him, did I? Somebody else did, of course, but that's a different story. But the way that these two really come together to get done what needs to get done on Scarif and you can see how that relationship builds through time without words. It's all shown on screen. None of it is laid out with, with clunky exposition that it's such a wonderful thing to finally watch. And, and again, I know I like, I'm harping on Rogue One, but Rogue One, man, it's, it's a way better film than a lot of people are giving it credit for. That's, that's my argument, and I'm sticking to it. Oh, I'm, I'm right there with you. That moment when Cassian leans into her and says, Welcome home, is just... It's it's yeah you're oh. you're definitely right it's so oh, in the heart. So I'm gonna go ahead and jump into my number two, and it's kind of predictable, but they're on the list for reasons you might not expect, and it's Han and Chewbacca. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you kind of it's kind of a given one, but I don't think in the original trilogy we really have 
a ton of examples of them being a heroic duo. Be at least alone. Every time you see them, it's kind of an ensemble situation. Um, so it's more so like how all the big three and Chewbacca and the droids and Lando and everybody work together. But the two examples that really stand out to me that kind of solidify this list is number one, you're going to hate me. Aftermath Life Dead, I think, shows how really dedicated they are to each other. The the stuff with Han and Chewbacca in there, and you see just the level of commitment that not just Chewbacca has for Han, but that Han has for Chewbacca, that it's it's beyond life debt. It's brotherhood for the two of them. And what they are able to achieve because of that, in terms of freeing not only Kashyyyk, but what they do in the original trilogy is pretty profound. But then Solo also helps a lot with this because like almost from the word go, these two just were in sync and you just see their growth as a team from the beginning to the end. And Mm -hmm. it's just, I think that end scene where you see Chewbacca with emphasis, where you see Chewbacca just right behind Han defines it perfectly. Like Chewie has his back no matter what. And when you jump to the force awakens and you have Chewbacca seeing Han die and the pain that is in that growl that he gives and how he he doesn't even hesitate he shoots kylo ren and that's a kill shot i mean he's shooting him in the gut that's a kill shot ren was lucky he had you know armor protecting him but Hmm. i i think han and chewbacca are the kind of friendship we all dream of and the fact that they also you know help save the galaxy while being such good friends is pretty (laughs) awesome no i think that's a good pick that's pretty well described yeah absolutely I'm so what's your number two? Uh, oh, what is? Actually, we're up to my number oh, one. Oh yeah, we are to your number one. Number one. We're up to number one. Ooh. I gotta scroll up. Hang on. Uh, it's Luke and Leia. They okay. are definitely, and, and I'm gonna go with the Return of the Jedi edition of these characters because I think once the two of them realize the connection between them, it changes the way everything else after that could go. Right. Um. And even before that, what I think that it's interesting that they're working together on kind of like a business relationship at the beginning of the film with the Jabba's Palace rescue um, disaster, because it's not really a plan. It's more of a disaster. They're they're both they both walk into that situation ready to sacrifice themselves. Like there's no way Leia thought she was going to get out of there by dropping off Chewbacca. She knew she was going to be stuck there, so she walked into that. Luke does the same thing, and he goes in unarmed. You know, he doesn't have his lightsaber with him. It's stuck in R two for a while. So both of them have kind of the same mindset. We're going to go in there. We're going to get captured. It's going to go poorly, but we're going to do it anyway. And then when they finally realize the truth between them uh, on Endor there, once once Luke knows it and explains it to Leia, they don't see each other again for the rest of the f- – until, until Luke comes to Endor after the whole battle is over. They don't see each other through the entire thing, and yet Leia is assured of their connection already. And I think that's a, an amazing change for her to undergo. Um, I don't think it's much of a change for Luke, but I think he's so happy to finally have a blood relative um, alive that he it, it changes the way he does everything, you know. And he knows that he's got to go save Vader, but he has to walk away from one newly discovered family member to go save another newly discovered family member. I, I really find like there's something 
unbelievably and classically good about that decision and wouldn't it wouldn't have worked if it had been done any other way. So I, I think those two, it's as good as it gets. You know, those two get, those two characters are kind of the embodiment of what we all want to be. I think, and the way we would all like to act, the way we hope we would all respond, with that kind of grace and that kind of poise and that acceptance of craziness. Because not only does Leia learn she's got a brother, but in the same paragraph of dialogue, she learns that her brother's father is the evil man behind the mask, and so she's smart enough to put the pieces together that that's her dad too well and luke walks into the second death star refusing to fight vader and it's done perfectly where if you look at the lightsaber duel luke does not take any shots at vader he only blocks the shots that vader takes at him until that until that vader discovers luke and Oh, it's so good. It's it's done perfectly by James Earl Jones. The lighting with the Luke's face half yep. dark, half light is everything about it is just perfect. And yeah, can't argue that. You know, and about that very, very that that exact sequence. I don't know when I realized it, but it wasn't. Uh, but for only a few years ago, when he screams at Vader, he says never. And I always thought it was just kind of a rage sound that he made, like. Ever since I was a kid, I thought he was just yelling in anger. Maybe that was because I was watching a crummy version on VHS and it was deteriorating every time I watched it. But when you clearly understand him to say never, it kind of changed the way I understood that. Because it seemed like, to me, thinking it's just rage and anger, it's, he, Vader finally got to Luke. Vader finally got him to say, I can do anything, and I can hurt anybody, and I'm willing to do that. And and, Vader, and Luke has enough of that, and he finally goes on the offensive. But now, now when you realize he shouts the word never, he's still defensive. He's protecting her, even though the dark side is slowly getting its tendrils in him, you know, and it's, it's, it's winding its way into his bones and whatnot. He still thinks he's on the defensive. And that's kind of an interesting twist because now he can't even tell that the dark side is getting to him. And, oh, I just love it even more. Yeah. It's so good. No, the, These Star are really Wars, good movies. Did you know that? These are really they're, good. They're, they're okay. They're, they're most, okay. Of them are, most of them are really, really good. You know, Star Wars has its problems, absolutely. But that end part of Return of the Jedi God. is near perfection. There's like, Return of the Jedi is such a weird film, and we should probably talk about this at, at another point. But there are moments in that film that are absolutely amazing. They're phenomenal. They're fantastic. They're wonderful adventure pieces. And there are other parts that are like, what in the world is happening? Like, did you ever look at the the satellite dish on Endor? The giant uh, deflector shield generator yeah. has four tiny little satellites on the dish, and you're like, that's not how satellite dishes work. <laughs> Come on! Physics is different. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. Okay. Oh, physics is I, weird in the Star Wars universe, but I do love Return of the Jedi so much. Oh, parts of it are phenomenal. Parts of it are just like, what are you guys smoking? <laughs> if if the behind the scenes stories are true, Carrie Fisher was on a lot. A lot. That I guess the answer to that question is a lot. You're right. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Anyway, top Anyways, of the list. Your number one. Hit us. My and, number and one. Bring Drum us home. Roll, please. This is going to shock everybody. Anakin and Ahsoka. Yep, there it is. You knew it was coming. I did. I, I think if we're talking about people that bring out the best in each other, Anakin and Ahsoka are the epitome because it's a relationship where they give each other as much as they receive from each other. 
Anakin chose Ahsoka how to how to go against the grain, not follow the rules, create her own path, and that is eventually the kind of strength she needs to walk away from the Jedi and mm. go on to become the fulcrum for the rebellion. And without her, I don't want to say without her, the galaxy would not have survived. The Empire would have won completely because that's not true. We, you know, before she existed, the, the Empire still fell. But I think. If we're looking at the way the story works now, the galaxy would have been in a lot more trouble if Fulcrum, if Ahsoka hadn't been around. And then mm. I think that Ahsoka allows Anakin to see a an almost fatherly-like relationship. Anakin is really, uh, obviously, bad with attachments. He's He's very attached, and Ahsoka almost becomes like a daughter for him. So sure. in a way, her walking away is losing a daughter. And so now he's lost his mother and his daughter, and then Revenge of the Sith, he's going to lose his wife. Yeah. And it's like kind of- And his child. Yeah. And and it's a three strikes you're out situation. Uh, And then I don't want to go too deep into this because I don't want to ruin Rebels for you. Thank you. But I, and I'll link this article in the show notes, but I think Ahsoka is- the one that keeps the flame of the, of the light side alive so that it can eventually be a spark ignited by Luke. Um, and that's all I'm going to say because I don't want to spoil it because it is a profound moment, but I'll definitely, uh, the, the show notes will have the link to the article and that'll explain all my thoughts there. But Anakin and Ahsoka just, it's everything. I mean, their, their relationship is fantastic. And also just, you know, Anakin is somebody who tries to control everything. And while he does try to convince Ahsoka to not leave, he doesn't try to force her to. He doesn't. He, he lets her point. be her own person. And that's, if you think about it, that's a very un-Anakin thing. He he tries to control everyone and everything around him. But Ahsoka, he doesn't. And I, I think that really just talks a lot about how how good their relationship was and how much they trusted each other and how much he believed in kind of the daughter that he had raised to make the right decisions. And, and even if it was not a decision that he agreed with. So yeah, well done. Yeah. I definitely uh, foresaw that one coming. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you stuck to it. Yeah. No, I mean, Ahsoka is my favorite character, but she's not, like, just my favorite character because it's like, oh, she's awesome. Because, I mean, she is, and I, I appreciate it, but I think her story adds a lot just to the galaxy at large, and and I appreciate that. So, yeah, that was, uh, those are our So stories. there it is. <laughs> That's it. Those are the best and the worst. It's we did it. now. You know what they are. There's You can never come up with another list or question it at all because we said it on a podcast. Oh, wow. So, therefore, Dude, it is okay, true. Okay, great. I'm done with that. <laughs> By the way, completely uh, buy into that. <laughs> you would. Uh, of course, you can send us your favorite and least favorite duos uh, over on the Twitter. Uh, we're at Clashing Sabers. <laughs> what? You're such a nerd. Okay. Whatever. It's me. People expect it by this point. Uh, yeah, we should. We really yeah, should. You really, really should. And uh, so we're at Clashing Sabers over on Twitter. Make sure you subscribe to the network so that you can get all of our shows, including Starships, Don't Burn the Sacred Text. We'll have some more episodes coming out 
uh, soon. Mark and I were talking about some very exciting episodes for Forever Star Wars, which, in my opinion, is the best podcast in the world. Um, and I'm biased in saying that, but I oh, it's so good. And <laughs> it's really fun. I, I say that like I have literally no play in or role in creating any of it other than like, yeah, Mark, your idea sounds great. Do that. And then I post it and the rest <laughs> is all Mark. It's so good. So anyways, uh, make sure you subscribe to the network and uh, you'll get all those shows in your feed. Please, please, please subscribe, rate and review Actually, I hadn't mentioned this, Drew, so this is going to be a shocker. I a, I have a box of Star Wars stuff, random Star Wars stuff, all mint condition, some toys in box, some cool things from cons and, and different things that I am giving to you. So the first five people to give us a rating and review on iTunes or anywhere else will get a little care package sent to them from yours truly. So all you need to do to enter that is leave us a rating and review on your podcatcher. Send a little picture. Say, hey, this is me. And uh, we'll, we'll send you a little goodie bag or a little care package. So go ahead and do that. Uh, Drew, you want to give your plugs? Uh, yeah, sure. I'm on the, the Twitter every so often. Um, at the Drew Brett. You can find me there. I'm trying to get some more articles together um, to post on the site. Um, but hopefully you guys will enjoy hearing us banter back and forth and, and screwing up Imperial officer names left and right. Um, I'll do a little bit better research next time. Sorry, guys. But I've, hopefully you guys will um, get involved in the conversation. That's kind of one of the mo more fun aspects of this in between shows is we get to shoot back and forth across the internet and see what other people think. Um, they like to add suggestions and additional commentary to things and, and let us know if there's a top bottom three you'd like to, to have us dig through. We'd love to get your suggestions, but otherwise it's going to be some pretty ridiculous stuff. I'm excited. <laughs> always fun. Always fun. And so until yes. next time, always remember, no matter how bad your day's going, at least you're not Mace Windu. <sighs> Cheap shot. Match eight. Hi ho! The podcast you just listened to and all other Clashing Sabers productions are the intellectual property of ClashingSabers.net. All sounds and materials used from other creators is their stuff, and we just use different informational and educational purposes. Bottom line, we made it, it's ours, they made it, it's theirs. Seems simple, but if you're still confused, feel free to email us at ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. We have no association with Lucasfilm, Disney, or any of the other fine companies that make all this stuff we talk about. But, Kathleen Kennedy, if you need anything, let me know. I work for cheap. Now let's blow this thing and get out of here. Apology accepted, Captain Nita.